Well, happy Easter. It's so good to see so many of you here and so many of you at home. The church traditionally have said on Easter Sunday, uh, the presider or the person in the front would say, he is risen, and the congregant would say, he's risen indeed. Let's try this. He's risen. He has risen. That's our confessional. Good morning. Last time this year on Easter, I don't know if you remember, it was the first time ever for me, and hopefully uh, it will be the last time in which I was home uh, with my family, uh, worshiping by watching our service with me preaching. It was one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever experienced. It's almost like watching UCLA and Gonzaga at the last three seconds. It's just horrible, right? I, I don't ever want to see that again. Usually when I review my preaching, I do it by myself in the dark with the sound turned down really low. I don't know about you, I'm very conscientious, so I'm so glad that we can be together, so many of us here uh, as we worship the same Christ. You know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark at paragraph at a time, and we're in this last paragraph, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. It's the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before we get into the paragraph, I want to make two disclaimers which may surprise you. The first disclaimer is this. If you look at your paper, uh, paper or your digital Bible, you will notice that many of your versions of the Bible will actually have verses 9 through 20 but it will be bracketed. And there will be a footnote saying that the earliest manuscripts or the earliest version of the New Testament do not include verses 9 through 20. You know, this may surprise us, but I want you to know that Bible scholars are honest and diligent as much as possible so that what the version that we have um, when we do our devotionals, when we preach, is as close to the original versions that the apostles or the disciples wrote. And so I do not want us to lose heart or confidence in the Bible. It is actually something that Bible scholars throughout the years have really striven after, and we try to have integrity with it. The second disclaimer that I want to make is this that if you're new to the church, you might be confused if you read the four versions of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew's version, Mark's version, Luke's version, or John's version. Sometimes it feels like they contradict one another. But I want you to know this, that uh, they're all talking about the same one event, but from different perspectives. So, uh, for example, we saw a wonderful dance uh, uh, film um, a video just a little while ago, and if you came in at a certain time and left before the whole video was played, you might have thought that uh, four people danced, or two people danced. Well, the full picture is six people danced, but different uh, cuts show different uh, numbers of people dancing. So, in Mark's version, it says that Mary Magdalene and the other ladies were talking to one angelic figure, while Luke and John said that uh, she was talking to two angelic figures. It is a, uh, all four Gospels together paint a complete, a more fuller picture, but they do not actually contradict, so I do not want you to lose confidence. Now, having said that, let's look at 
Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and I will be reading from the ESV version. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome uh, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first week, first day of the week, when the sun had set, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is an encounter that Jesus has, no, that these three women have. And, uh, and they, what they will encounter are three tensions, three battles. They will, they will have an, uh, an emotional wrestling and then an intellectual wrestling and a volitional wrestling. They will uh, go through this journey as they encounter the purported resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the three points that I'm going to make today are the ambiguity, the ambiguity of twilight, the surprise of the empty tomb, and the fear of the truth. So let's begin with ambiguity of Twilight, verses 1 through 3, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome uh, brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. It is helpful to kind of cover the who, the when, what, and why. The story is of three women. They are the uh, protagonists, but I'm going to focus on Mary Magdalene, because I believe she is the primary protagonist, not only in Mark's version, but surprisingly in all four gospel versions of the resurrection. You know, I, you know, a lot of people believe that Jesus had just 12 apostles, 12 disciples, 12 followers. But if you read the scriptures carefully, he not only had the 12 male disciples, but he had a number of unnumbered uh, women followers. And among them, the primary, the chief, the, the one who is uh, referred to most often was this by a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, uh, Mary was a tremendously common name in this particular time. And so in order to distinguish her, they call her Mary Magdalene. Uh, Magdalene was probably in reference to the town she was from, Magdala. It's kind of like saying John Kim of y Yorba Linda, something like that, you know, because we have so many of them, per se. <laughs> Sorry, John. And uh, this is what Luke says of uh, Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. And the 12 disciples were with Jesus and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So this is what we know of Mary. She had uh, evil spirits and infirmities, and, and she was the one that they, uh, Luke mentions foremost. It, it, he says that she had seven demons who had gone out from her. 
some people interpret that as having uh, seven demons that possessed her and so seven exorcism that had to be done on her. But the number seven could also mean uh, in the Hebrew cult culture uh, the idea of complete, whole. So it could also mean that she was wholly possessed, not just partially. She was, Mary Magdalene was someone who was spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, completely broken and possessed at one point in time in her life. And Jesus healed her. She had changed. And she began to follow this Jesus who had saved her. And I believe she was um, on the road to Jerusalem when uh, the crowd were, were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe she was there. And I, I believe that what she had thought and hoped is that when, when the people really know Jesus, the Jesus that I know, that they would embrace him, fall on their feet, uh, on their knees, and worship him like I have done. But we know the story. Uh, it changed fairly quickly. The religious leaders, instead of embracing Jesus, arrest him. Uh, put him on a mock trial, nail him to a cross, and bury him. And we are told that this particular woman, Mary Magdalene, and it is interesting, the scripture makes a point of pointing her out, that she was there by the cross. She was watching as he was buried. This woman, whose life had changed, but saw her earthly savior be crucified on the cross. When they took his body away to be buried, I, I, if you know a Jewish culture and history, you'll know that um, the, the evening was uh, coming and they rushed to bury him because they couldn't let him stay on the cross on the Sabbath. And they didn't have time to prepare his body pro properly. And so Joseph of Arimathea put him in his tomb, but the body was unprepared. And I am sure that what was going through Mary's mind was this, that on that Sabbath, that Sabbath that was supposed to be a day of rest and worship, a day when Jews were not supposed to go and especially touch a corpse, that in her home she was agonizing. helpless to do anything when her Jesus was being crucified and buried. And the only thing that she could have offered was perhaps to anoint his body with spices, perfume, but unable to do so. I believe what was going through Mary Magdalene's mind and her heart all throughout the Sabbath as she was in agony there's nothing I could do, but perhaps, perhaps I can go anoint his body. I want you to understand something carefully. As, as faithful as Mary Magdalene was, she did not go to the tomb on that Sunday morning in order to meet the risen Jesus. You would not take spices 
that, are, that, that would be used to anoint a corpse if she expected to meet a risen Jesus. Do you understand? She fully expected to go and meet a corpse. Her and her friends were wondering, who will roll away the stone for us? I, I, I say this crassly, but I want you to hear me out. That Mary came to the tomb in order to perfume up a corpse that morning. She did that morning what followers of other religions have done over the thousands of years. When the followers of Muhammad and Buddha and other religious figures would go to remember, to honor the death of, the bodies of those who, who have died. And in her heart and in her emotions at that moment, that's all she could do. You know, it is interesting the when that this, is, this happened. It is, um, I, I believe Mary was waiting until the Sabbath was over. And she, she, she had everything prepared. And as soon as there's a glimmer of light on the horizon, I will go. I will go to that tomb in order to honor my Lord. It is interesting because Mark says that the sun had risen. John says it was still dark. It is that in-between time where it's fully light and fully dark. It is that twilight where it's in-between neither fully light or fully dark. And I believe it is a great metaphor for life. Life is neither fully light or fully dark. And we're constantly caught in between the darkness and the light. And oftentimes we go back and forth. We live in a reality when there are times when we feel completely helpless and hopeless and other times when we feel hopeful and powerful. There are times when we feel like uh, life is ruined, there's nothing left for me. And there are other times when we feel joyful of the future. We oftentimes live in that twilight, do we not? And I believe this pandemic has certainly given us a glimmer of that where there are times when we feel like there is no hope. How long? And there are other times we feel like, you know, it's not so bad. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Twilight is an interesting time, or dusk or dawn, depending on whether the sun is rising or setting. You know, um, when I drive from Chino Hills to Brea, where our church is, early in the morning, during the time when the sun is just about setting. Because Chino Hills is east of Brea when I'm driving, that where I'm going is dark, but behind me is light. Because that's where the sun is rising. Twilight is an interesting time. It is both dark and light 
and, and really the difference is not just how you are seeing things, but the direction in which you are seeing things. During twilight, it is light if you're facing the sun, but it is dark when you're facing away from the sun. Mary Magdalene, what I appreciate about her in this in-between the light and the dark times is that I believe she was emotionally broken in despair at having lost her rabbi, uh, having lost the person that she, that she believed changed her life. She did not come that Sunday morning expecting him to have risen. She, in her mind, fully believed that he was dead forever. What I appreciate about Mary Magdalene is this, that in the midst of the twilight, when she was wrestling emotionally between helplessness and hope, she looked toward her Christ, and she kept coming. And, you know, I'm not sure what struggles, what twilight you are going through. For some, it's their marriage, and you're not sure if there's hope for your marriage. For others, it's your child. You're not sure if he'll come back to the Lord. For others, it's their health or their parents or their mental health, and you're not quite sure uh, whether you're in the light or where, uh, whether you're in the dark. And I want you to, I want to challenge you that in the midst of your emotional wrestling, that if you are not sure what you should do, how you should think, simply look toward Jesus and keep looking toward Jesus. We continue with the second point, the surprise of the empty tomb. Mary arrives at the tomb, verses 4 through 6, says that she's alarmed, surprised by several things. And it is here in which she will have to intellectually wrestle with what she finds. She, she's fully convinced that Jesus is dead. But she arrives to find a set of evidences that challenges her intellect. She finds that the stone had been rolled back, and, uh, and Mark makes a footnote of uh, it saying that it was a very large stone. It was a stone so large that, that the three women, when they were walking toward the tomb, uh, decided that they weren't collectively strong enough to move the stone. But it had been moved. Secondly, the, uh, the, the question of the missing guards, it's uh, not explicitly stated here, but Matthew tells us that they had st uh, stationed Roman guards and uh, put a seal on the, the stone. Matthew further tells us that it was a large earthquake and an, an angel who moved the stone, and that set of events spooked the guards so much that they fled from the scene, told the authorities, the authorities bribed them to lie. Mary came and noticed 
There was no one, and an abandoned tomb. And finally, as she goes inside, there was an angelic being who points to the place where the body was, the linen cloth that the corpse had been wrapped in. And the angel says to Mary, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. The displaced stone, the missing guards, and the empty tomb, the fourth evidence is out of the testimony of the angel himself. And the angel explains the reason why the stone had been rolled away, the, the guards were gone, and the place is empty is because he has risen. All four gospel writers specifically talked about Mary Magdalene's encounter with the angel or angels. Matthew and John also say that the risen Christ appeared directly to Mary herself. Let me ask you, how do you explain the testimony of, of Mary Magdalene who insists that she uh, saw these angels and she experienced the risen Christ? And at this moment, Mary had to make a decision or she was wrestling intellectually. She was fully convinced before this time that Jesus had died, but now she's wrestling with all of the evidence that challenges her present reality. You know, critics for thousands of years tried to explain why the tomb was empty. The, the religious authorities, those who opposed Jesus, could have simply explained the empty tomb in other ways or, or, or produced the bodies, but they did not. Some critics explained that, that, that Mary and the other women, the other disciples had all lied or they had hallucinated. Some say that the early church um, made things up. It's a mythological claim. Let me give a couple of arguments against this. One of the arguments that critics make is that this is all fake news. The disciples stole the body and made up the resurrection stories. Well, Paul says, not too long after this incident, that Jesus appeared to Cephas or Peter, the disciples, and 500 or so others. He also appeared to James and himself. And, and, and at the time of Paul's writing, many, many of those people were still alive. Lynn. Now, it is entirely plausible to believe that perhaps one or two would commit a lie in order to save themselves or to gain something. But why would one or two or even dozens or hundreds lie and that lie would result in their deaths. We lie in order to gain. We lie in order to save our own lives. We do not lie when that lie results in our deaths. It makes no plausible sense. I, I want to point to something um, else as well. You know, it is interesting that in Mark 1540, 1547, and 161, that on three different occasions, 
on the crucifixion, on the burial, and the resurrection, then Mary Magdalene and the other women are named specifically. The British writer Richard Bachman explained that when uh, people are named, that this is their way of providing evidence that the testimony of individuals is how they prove things. And the reason being is that when people are named and they're still alive, if anyone has a dispute, they can simply go and ask that person. There was a video of Pastor Ben at the barber shop. It was a, a deep fake. Or did it really happen? Did he actually go to the barber shop, give his barber a Living Oak t-shirt, and film the whole thing? It sounds ridiculous, right? Who would do something like that? Only Pastor Ben, right? <laughs> well, you know, because of technology, which has gotten so sophisticated, some could argue that that's a deep fake. But we can say, no, no, just ask Pastor Ben, ask the barber if this is true. And in this particular time in history, um, uh, the this historian believes that the reason why these uh, people are named so specifically tied to these specific incidences in history is so that people can simply ask Mary, did this happen? Tim Keller talks about a, a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus, who lived about 80 years after the life of Jesus, and he was an ardent opponent of Christianity. And he wrote a number of books uh, arguing against the Christian faith, and one of his strongest arguments, as paraphrased, uh, paraphrased by Keller, is this. And, and, I, and, I, and, and this is not me. This is Celsus, and this is not Tim Keller. Ke Tim Keller is kind of paraphrasing Celsus, the Greek philosopher. And the Greek philosopher says, the reason Christianity is not true is because one of the reasons we know that Christianity can't be true is because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. I know, that's pretty offensive. I didn't say it. Celsus, furthermore, says that you cannot trust these kind of accounts because uh, slaves, women, and children tend to be foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Now, I know it's offensive, but as some critics would say, Christians or the early church made all of this up. This is fake news. If they wanted to uh, try to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, why would they use the testimonies, fake testimonies of women, three women, prominently in all four Gospels if they wanted to prove something that did not happen. The more plausible explanation is that perhaps it really did happen and the Gospel writers simply wrote what happened. Mary was wrestling intellectually And finally, the third point, the fear of the truth. Now we get to 
what I believe is a volitional tension. Mary is processing all the evidence and is unsure her emotions, her intellect are conflicted. And it says that she came out of the tomb trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Mary was, I believe, was afraid and I believe she was fearful, listen, of the potential truth. She came in thinking Jesus was dead. She is leaving the tomb with the proposition that a dead man became alive again. That's a mind-blowing proposition. And the angel told her, now go tell Peter and the other disciples. Now go to Galilee. And in verse 7, the message that was given to her was, Go and tell his disciples, Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee, and, and there you will see him just as he told you. The angel says, Don't simply sit, but do. And as you do, you will encounter Jesus in a greater way. I, 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 want, you, I want us to understand that she was given all the proof that she needed to take the next step. But it is when she began to take the next steps to accept intellectually that this is plausible at least, that Jesus appeared to her. That she, she took her intellectual tension, she acted on it as if plausibly Jesus did really rise again. And when she was taking those steps, she experienced Jesus. We are told in the Gospel of John that Mary has a particular encounter with Jesus. And Jesus calls her by name in this private encounter, Mary. And she calls back Rabboni, teacher. You know, what happened with the initial set of cowards and skeptics and deniers that made them become fierce followers, 11 disciples all giving their lives as martyrs. You know, it's not simply Jesus having been a good teacher, a good example, or an inspiration to all, because he was inspiring and, and good and healing before his death, right? Something happened that dramatically changed them. Um, and, and, you know, here's my science geek coming out in me now, okay? For those of you who are STEM people, listen. Uh, can you prove gravity? Can you prove gravity? Scientists will say that you cannot technically prove the existence of gravity. Um, what you do, what you can do, is examine the phenomenon of bodies coming together and thereby observe gravity. Like, the black, like black holes far away in the universe, we observed its impact and could conclude that there's a black hole there. 
there are many things in which we accept as reality, not by so-called scientific proof where you put it in a test tube and do it over and over again, but rather we look at the phenomenon, the impact of it, and conclude that must exist. It must be true. What turned the disciples from coward to martyrs? Look at the impact. Look at its, their influences. In almost all other religions, the founder establishes him or herself while they were alive. They gather followers and masses, consolidate political or military power. They establish properties and boundaries. Um, they um, write uh, a lot of work and they establish schools. But listen, what did Jesus leave behind? Nothing. He left none of those things behind. And in fact, I would argue with you that during the three years life of uh, ministry of Jesus, he was, by and large, an insignificant figure in history. But it is after his death that something happened in which the influence of Jesus exploded. Tim Keller says the founders of other great world religions died peacefully surrounded by their followers and the knowledge that their movement was growing. In contrast, Jesus died in disgrace, betrayed and denied, abandoned by everyone, even his father. The teachings of Jesus, the examples of Jesus should have died with him, but what is it that made Christianity flourish not during his lifetime but after his death? And I would argue with you, it is not his teaching example, but it is an event. The disciples could have disagreed on what they were inspired by, but they all agreed that he died and he rose again. You know, no other religion rests simply on an historical event. You know, if, if a group of uh, Hebrews were to start a, a new version of Judaism, you would think that they would uh, meet regularly on the Sabbath. Why is it that they suddenly began to meet on the first day, Sunday? What happened that caused uh, world history to be divided into B.C. or A.D.? We can't observe the wind, but we observe its impact. What happened that turned cowards into martyrs? What happened so that this uh, minuscule of a figure in Galilee became uh, the founder of the, uh, the most influential religion in the world in history? What happened even secular? The world history is divided into two. What is uh, the reason for its impact. Mary Magdalene says, it's because he has risen. Do you understand the weightiness of the risen Jesus? If Jesus did not rise, he would be a good example and teacher. He would be an inspiration and hero to many who um, 
when he was alive, he should be honored and remembered, but only as much as we honor and remember other dead people. No more. But we would still be left up to our own weaknesses, our own helplessness, our own addictions, our own sins. But if Jesus rose from the dead, everything is different. Trivia question, who was the first person to see the risen Jesus? Mary Magdalene. Who was the first person see, to see the empty tomb? Mary Magdalene. Who was the first person that Jesus, after he rose again, called by name? Mary Magdalene. Christ changed the life while, she was, uh, while he was still on earth, but it is, his, it is when he rose again that she realized that he not only has power over demons while he was alive, but he has power over eternity and sin. He has hope for the future. And so if you are here today, I, I would, um, or if you're watching today, I, I would ask you to emotionally, intellectually, and volitionally consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Wrestle with them Allow it to be plausible at least. And as you act on its plausibility, if Jesus is really whom he says he is, I believe that he will respond and answer and show himself to us. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness. And, and there are times we wrestle within our, ourselves. And I pray for those that are struggling emotionally. I pray for those who are doubting. I, I pray for those of us who are on a standstill that you would continue to challenge us to remind us that you not only died, but you rose again. And that provides power over sin and death. And we lean into that. And for those who do not know you, I pray that they would simply come before you and ask, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm helpless and hopeless without you. I thank you for dying on my behalf instead of me to save me from my sins and give me life eternal. And with little faith that I have, I accept you. I accept that gift. Help me to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.